3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current ass. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to late 30am. And good morning listeners, you're listening to 3CR 855am. It's Thursday the 12th of December um, and this morning you're going to be hearing my voice quite a bit. Um, so you're listening with Carly Beck this morning. Um, I'm the only one in the studio at the moment um, but later on we're going to be hearing from um, just some incredible speakers. Um, so this morning we're going to be playing um, a section from... Uh, Power from the Margins, which aired um, on Disability Day. It was such an incredible day um, of just, yeah, incredible content that was aired on 3CR. So we're going to be listening to a conversation uh, between Latoya Rule um, and then also Dominic Golding, um, and that is uh, titled Ableism in the Settler Colony. And then later on in the show, going to be speaking with Phil Murray, who is one of the Indigenous um, Seed organisers. Just going to be speaking to Phil about upcoming campaigns um, that Seed's running, um, especially the No Fracking in the NT campaign. And then we're going to be speaking with uh, Roxanne Moore, who's the Executive Officer of Natsals, and she's going to be speaking to us about cuts to the National Family Violence Prevention and Legal Services Forum. Um, and so that forum has been advised that its $244,000 a year funding will not be renewed past June 2020. And then last up, I'm going to be speaking with incredible artist um, who's based out of Footscray, um, Clara Sion, and she's going to be speaking to us about the measles epidemic in Samoa and an upcoming fundraiser to support folks over there. So stay tuned for a really exciting show, um, and I'm going to get Kate Kelly on the line for news in just a second. Accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the... How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. Join me, Aya Cry with Ubuntu Voices. Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices, every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free. One of us is chained. None of us are free. 
You're listening to 3CR 855. Um, and this morning, as I said, it's just myself, Carly, in the studio. Um, but I'm really glad that Kate Kelly can join us this morning on the line to give us a news update. Welcome, Kate. Morning, Kelly. <laughs> How are you going? Good, good. Um, so, for news headlines this morning, first, we have around 20,000 protesters marched from Town Hall to Hyde Park in Sydney on Wednesday evening, demanding stronger action on climate change as smoke continues to cover Australia's biggest city. So everyone is probably aware that Sydney has spent the last few days shrouded in toxic smoke as the air quality index reached 11 times higher than hazardous in many parts of the city. The bushfires have burned nearly 3 million hectares of land across New South Wales and Queensland this year. So the protesters gathered wearing dust masks, and speakers called on the state and federal governments to increase funding to the rural fire service and provide P2 masks for air um, for firefighters to help the firefighters, hospitals, aged care facilities, and schools. So there had been a bit of outrage across the nation earlier on Wednesday when several crowdfunding pages popped up from rural fire departments asking people to chip in so volunteer firefighters could purchase face masks to wear on the job. An emergency climate change rally has also been planned for Melbourne next week on Wednesday, the 18th of December, outside the State Library of Victoria. And the inaugural First Peoples Assembly met on Tuesday, starting the path to treaty negotiations between the Victorian government and Aboriginal nations. The Assembly, which is made up of 32 members who were elected of elected from Aboriginal Victorians in a statewide voting process, met in the same parliament the White Australia policy was created, with one member remarking that they were turning the room back. So if successful, the Assembly will negotiate the first statewide treaty framework in Australia, allowing the creation of a treaty or or essentially a series of treaties to begin um, essentially correcting the colonial imbalance of power. So throughout, throughout the assembly, there were common threads found in the maiden speeches of the members. They spoke of their desire to overcome disagreements to create a legacy for future Aboriginal generations. And finally, um, today the Aboriginal Community Elders Services in Brunswick East will be hosting its annual fate. A spokesperson for the event said that alongside the standard fate fund, elders will be setting up stalls and selling the art they have created in 2019. They'll be marking the prices themselves and all proceeds go back to them. There'll also be snacks, a raffle prize from Bunnings and good chats were promised. So the fate is held at 5 to 6 Buckley Avenue in Brunswick East and goes from 10 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. So I reckon get down if you can. That's all the news headlines for Thursday. Thanks so much, Kate, for giving us those updates. Um, Yeah, I'm really excited to see what the First Peoples Assembly can do. Um, So, yeah, yeah, we'll have to just, um, yeah, keep getting some more updates in the new year. And could you also just repeat um, the information for the emergency climate rally for listeners? All right, yeah, so that's, it's next week. Um, It's Wednesday the 18th of December and it's outside the State Library of Victoria. Mm, Great. Yeah, I saw some photos um, on social media last night um, 
for the climate rally that was in Sydney. And I was just thinking it's just so telling because you couldn't even see the masses of people because of the smog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And 20,000 people for a snap rally, I think, is, is quite, that's quite a large number. You know, the, the, the city is upset and, and rightly so, you know. Mm, absolutely. Um, just off the back of all of these bushfires in New South Wales, it's just, yeah, it's very dystopic. Yeah. Yeah, it's exceptionally concerning. And I think, you know, I think the thing was with Scott Morrison announcing the Religious Freedoms Bill when when the city was shrouded in smoke and so much of the country was up in fire. And, you know, they're having NATO fires now, which where the image, you see the images of them and they're just these huge tornadoes of fire. And then the Prime Minister might have been a bit tone, tone deaf to, to the situation, really. Mm. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Kate, for joining us this morning on 3CR. You're very welcome. Have a wonderful show. And now I think we might um, head into um, an interview um, between Latoya Rule and Dominic Golding. Um, And this is a part of the broadcasting that occurred on Disability Day. Um, So it's an interview that was a part of this 12-hour long broadcast, um, and it's called Power from the... uh, So it's called Ableism in the Settler Colony, and that was a part of Power from the Margins. So my name's Latoya Aroha Rule. Um, I'm a Radria Māori person living on Ghana land in South Australia, Adelaide. I do a lot of campaign work, I would say. So I, I identify as um, an activist scholar. So I do a bit of writing around Aboriginal deaths in custody, but also campaigning, uh, particularly over the last three years on this issue, after the death in custody of my own brother, uh, Wayne Feller Morrison, here in South Australia. So um, what we know at the moment with some statistics done by a friend of mine, Jerry Borjard from Western Australia, we know that one in five Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander women are incarcerated at the moment, and that's one in seven for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander men, which is literally some of the highest incarceration rates in the world uh, for Aboriginal people. As we also know, you know, a lot of those psychosocial cognitive disabilities, so when we talk about, say, like reporting, for instance, we know that, you know, there's always an insufficient amount of reporting and research that actually captures people with disabilities because of the wide range of what that actually looks like. But there's been a few reports done, one by the Human Rights Watch Committee, found such a high level and rate of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in prison have multiple disabilities that aren't being captured by the particular data that we need to be capturing these in. And we only see the outcomes of these high statistics and these rates when people are subjected to different oppressions in prisons and where their healthcare needs aren't taken seriously. So, yeah, in terms of statistics, we are the most incarcerated people in the world right now. I think I first heard you speak at Imagining Abolition last year, which was the conference that Sisters Inside put together. At that conference, there was one session that specifically at the intersection of... uh, It was basically a clinical psychologist, a white clinical psychologist, actually, who was talking about disability and youth justice. That was the name of the session, I believe. And I went to it, and it was a 20-minute talk on 
how from the get-go kids sort of labeled problem children because they have undiagnosed disabilities wind up in youth incarceration and from then on Mm -hmm. it's just basically a lifetime in the system. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about young Aboriginal people in youth incarceration Yeah, so particularly uh, for young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, our young peoples actually, at least in the Northern Territory at the moment, make up 100% of all youth peoples in prison. So there's not one non-Aboriginal person at all locked up at the moment in the Northern Territory. We know that there's obviously huge rates, particularly right now for New South Wales and Victoria, being incarcerated. Some um, reporting has come out through Amnesty International With their Communities is Everything campaign, there's a few other human rights watch communities and the Human Rights Legal Centre that is, you know, publishing on youth incarceration. If we can remember the Don Dale incident, we've had particular images being released to us of Aboriginal young people, you know, in spithoods and and really being tortured in these places of, of imprisonment as well. And, you know, while we're talking about disability, our young people are actually leaving prisons and our, all people are really are leaving prisons because of the violent nature of what they do to people. So they're actually leaving prisons with kind of these new issues, I guess you can say. But that's not only that they're leaving into things like homelessness and, and poverty, but they're leaving traumatised. They're leaving, um, you know, after being beaten and bashed by corrections and police while, you know, they spent time inside. So we have to consider the fact that, you know, health needs aren't being met inside, but they're actually coming out with even more health concerns. And that's just not what the state sends people away for. We don't expect people to be injured and harmed during their time incarcerated, but we do know that these are the most violent spaces, particularly for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people and people of colour and black people that exist right now in our society if not in you know, the common-day surveillancing of us in everyday society. We also know that people with disabilities are particularly kept in places of solitary confinement for not abiding by rules and regulations of the prison system. We know there's an overrepresentation of being locked up in these, um, in fucking captivity, to be honest. Um, that's what solitary confinement is the dehumanisation that I'm talking about, this is something that relates back to colonisation. You know, it's, it's particularly just an ongoing systemic issue of racism for people who are already facing those oppressions uh, and injustice and inequalities that's heightened in places like prisons and police cells. So at the moment in South Australia, thanksfully through people like Connie Benaros from SA Best, you know, political team in Parliament, she's been able to push a new bill in Parliament to actually ban all spithoods in places of youth imprisonment across South Australia, which would actually make us nationwide in the colony of Australia Mm. to completely ban all spithoods in all places of youth detention. So South Australia is the last one to do that. But we know that those still exist, and in particular restraints still exist in, in adult prisons. So I will hopefully next year be beginning to build that campaign further to look at adults. There's some really strong players across Australia who are really keen to look at those restraints because we know, and when I say restraints, I'm not just you know talking about physical restraints through 
um, different like mechanisms, but I'm talking about procedures of restraint as well. So in my brother's case, we've heard evidence and we've seen evidence of corrections officers using their force of their body to restrain my brother. So they fell on him twice, one particular corrections officer. Sorry, when I say fell, I mean purposefully used their body weight to restrain an individual. And, you know, there were over 14 corrections officers involved in that restraint, seven in the van. So when they pulled Wayne out, he was unconscious. Those aspects are really important for us to be looking into because they coincide with other deaths in custody, but also just other complaints, you know, where people have nearly lost their lives and have been hospitalised in prisons because of these types of restraints and and mechanisms used. They're very dangerous and it's, you know, a form of torture and that's in a lot of ways how it's been called out. In terms of healthcare in prisons, we know that particularly for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, again, there's no culturally appropriative healthcare, so there's no Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nurses um, or medical staff, you know, in the prisons much at all. Can I just also say, for trans and non-binary people, there's an insufficient amount of research being done, so I can't even say for those groups what kind of healthcare needs or thinking about disability as well, what kind of access they're receiving because we know that today there are still um, trans women in, in men's prisons, for instance, and so we know that in terms of getting access to, you know, what they need to stay healthy, to stay sane and, and you know, for their social and emotional well being, they're not actually receiving that health care. And so, yeah, in terms of healthcare there's a huge issue as well for people who already have things that they need monitored. If we can think about one example that I have of this is actually one of my friends gave me a call last year when her father was taken from prison and he actually had cancer in prison and he fell over in his cell and they didn't know why. He was rushed to hospital and the family actually weren't notified for two days and they were actually accidentally notified. So South Australia has a policy where the family aren't to be notified until seven days if that person is even in hospital. So we think about people in prisons with disabilities. Their families may not even be told or notified that they're actually, you know, aren't receiving the access to healthcare that they need and the advocacy that they need. And then we know that by the time that might happen, if they stay that long in hospital or for their care, you know, sometimes it's too late. This is something that I'm really passionate about and something that needs to change. These are issues that just, like, aren't being spoken about either, so it's really important that we do that now. The fact is, is that, you know, the colonial state will never dismantle itself, and so it's not going to give up money to put into research on these really particular issues that focus mainly around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, black, POC, trans, non-binary, queer individuals in prison because at the end of the day that doesn't really affect colonial project and its continuation you know and so it's really hard to find the resource to do this research in the first instance and then people that are doing them we know that majority of those are white you know great allies a lot of them but it's still just insufficient like we need the resources to be doing this work ourselves you're listening to ableism in the settler colony 3CR's Disability Day broadcast. 
Next up, here's Dominic Golding, the Ability Rights Coordinator at RISE Refugee Survivors and Ex-Detainees. Last year, he released an advocacy report titled Ex-Detainees, Asylum Seekers and Refugees with Disabilities, Our Needs and Perception of Disability. He spoke to Mario Pezega about this and systemic barriers that refugees and asylum seekers with disabilities face. I have two disabilities and I'm of a Vietnamese background. I have a good experience of the disability sector. And what has happened over the time is that a number of our, our members have come forward requesting support around their disabilities. Mm-hmm. So I kind of naturally grew out of that. Yeah. Um, and so we kind of developed a, a, a support program, uh, not in the sense of uh, like a, a case management work, but in the sense of trying to f- find linkages and services available for um, asylum seekers and refugees. But through that, what I encountered was that a lot of information that's not available are known by both the disability sector and by the refugee sector. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of puzzled by that because I've, I've worked in the community sector for the last 17 years, mainly around refugees and, mm-hmm. and migrants. And I just thought, oh, that, that's just really interesting. So I... Even though I've grown up in Australia, I have two disabilities, so I have a hearing impairment as well as mild cerebral palsy. Mm. So I kind of know the sector quite well. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the questions I asked is about where can I get support? Who can I talk to? Mm. What access do I have? Mm. And a lot of the time when I went out to look for certain services, mainstream services, to get accurate information about eligibility and accessibility was just amazingly difficult. So you can go on all these different websites. Mm. A, they're all in English. That's the first barrier. Mm. And number two, to find the relevant information, you have to go through several different pages of the website mm. in order to find what you need and it's like well I'm English speaker literate and if it's difficult for me yeah. it must be quite difficult for recently arrived the lived experience of um, our members is vital to how we deliver our services and it's also vital to how our self-advocacy works at large so because it's driven by our own lived experience mm. The services are try to be as open and accessible as possible, mm-hmm. but also so that the members of the board are also of that background. On that basis of support and getting the funding support, we rely mainly on donations from the refugee community, but also we, we make a political stance that because of the government's role in perpetuating not only mental health issues, but also disability issues yeah. for our members who are in detention or get out of detention. Yeah. So we, we believe we should not take money from mm. the federal government. So we kind of take that stance when it comes to developing our support services and yeah. advocacy in, in that space. 
it's a big difference to, say, other organisations that are in the refugee sector who haven't kind of centred that lived experience as much and involved people who actually are asylum seekers and refugees. Uh, yes, I would agree with that. That's mainly because no fault of their own, but you're operating, those services operate within the mainstream mm. perimeter. So it, it basically is really about delivering a, a service that generally comes from a universal equitable position. Mm. It's actually not a catering to what you would think would be the denominator group that you're servicing. Yeah. So we tend to take the opposite view, which is I experienced a concern in the community and a barrier. I will, will develop a service to help directly support that. An example would be we have quite a few different services. So we have a library which is freely accessible, but it's, it's stocked by texts and books by people of colour. And but, but mainly, most of our work is advocacy, and the other lot of our work is legal advocacy, so mm. case work around the tribunal. So that brings me to the report that you wrote. Um, it's called Ex-Detainees, Asylum Seekers and Refugees with Disabilities, Our Needs and Perceptions of Disability. So... You've kind of already talked about why this is important. Can you talk us through the process of how this report came about? Yeah, this report came about from my engagement with funding bodies. Mm. And the principal question that we got feedback from those funding bodies was that where's the information, where's the data around refugees with disabilities? Mm. And we went, oh, OK, so... Just having antidotal evidence from our members was not enough. We needed to come up with a more concrete, conclusive um, basis of, of why a service is, is needed, particularly for this cohort, which is refugees and asylum seekers with disabilities. So I had the opportunity to do the Social Equity Institute Fellowship at Melbourne Uni, that allowed me access to the resources and two mentors from mm. the sector, mm. one in the disability sector and one in the um, refugee sector. Mm. And I started out with a literature review and then I incorporated what I call an um, unstructured, semi-structured interview process um, with our members to kind of see whether, how much of the information that's out there in relation to um, the experiences of our members. So try and match, match them together. So it's really aimed at refugee organisations, um, migrant resource centres, health clinics and health services and disability services. So they get an understanding of if any of their clients is of a refugee background and has a disability, they kind of have a a bit of a base understanding of, of some of the complexities of, yeah. of coming to a country newly arrived and with a disability. When I was reading it, I was thinking this is really good for just mainstream community services, right? Because often they don't come in contact with people who are refugees and newly arrived. And I think you were talking before about funding bodies and funding bodies can sometimes be very siloed in kind yeah. of the way they fund and then services also become really siloed and I know that's something you wrote in your report. So can you talk to me a little bit 
about the silos and how actually that gets enacted when people try and access supports. So the, the, the Dada approach is really come, what I believe, came out of the medical model. The disability was seen traditionally as, as from a, a defunction of one's body and, impair, and that's an impairment. So our way of looking at disability was, in a sense, developed on how, how do you fix that? So that's one side of it. And there's a lot of literature, a lot of work around around how that is compared to the social model of our disability. Mm. But the refugee end of it, it really comes out of border crossing, the literature around legal status of being a refugee and what you need to prove to be a refugee, which is about persecution. Mm. And what was really interesting was that I found that none of the disability literature and the refugee sector literature actually communicated mm. both intersectionality-wise. So there's very little information from the refugees about experiences of disability mm. and what that means. And I found that really strange because generally most refugees come from conflict zones. And what happens in conflict zones? People get shot at, they're bombed, they're fleeing, fleeing burning villages and towns and so forth. Generally that creates disability. <laughs> and But the disability sector really comes more out of a community activist stance from the 1960s and mm-hmm. 70s, but mainly from the 1970s in a domestic advocacy. So it's out of institutions mm-hmm. from the medical model into the community. So the disability sector literature was really about how do you get equality, how do you get fair treatment, how do you challenge the idea of the medical and moving it into the social model. But what they don't talk about is minority groups, what we like to call people of colour or migrants. Mm. Most of the literature from the disability sector is Anglo-Saxon mainstream, which is where it comes from. So mm-hmm. what was interesting about the disability was is that the only aspect of disability that looks as close to the refugee area was veterans, mm-hmm. war veterans, and the history of war veterans advocating for better support services for their disability. So I kind of try to bridge those two together. Another barrier that you highlight in your report is that Refugees who arrive on humanitarian grounds and asylum seekers are granted different visas. So the visas, depending on what visa you're on, is actually also dependent on what services you can access. Can you talk a bit about that? That's a a very complex one because visas are purposely built to be complex. Mm, They are. (laughs) So to unpack it as simply as I can, Mm. you're a refugee you can come into Australia on a humanitarian entrance visa, you're automatically given permanent residency. Mm. This gives you access to all the mainstream services, disability services, plus Medicare. All the bridging visas, TBV and CHEV visas only give you access to Medicare and that's restricted on what kind of services there are. Mm. 
Medicare is not disability support services. And that's why I try to make clear in the report that those who are asylum seekers have an additional barrier and w when they have a disability, there's more barriers to encounter. So if you have a hearing impairment and you're an asylum seeker, mm. you cannot always get hearing aids from the mainstream hearing audiologists mm. in Australia. Yeah. But also you're locked out of one principal defining act of a form that's currently happening, which is the NDIS, which is only available for those who are on her permanent residence. So that's where it gets a bit complicated. <laughs> Try to separate the visas as well as the different classes and what you're eligible for. The way you've explained it is there's a whole bunch of people that actually can't have access to any services or mm. any help in the community. Yeah. 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 So going back to the silos you were talking about before and how there's no communication between the different kind of, you know, sectors and things like that. One of the things that you wrote about in your report, which I thought was really interesting, was that often services don't ask the question about disability and, you know, ask about whether people are needing support for that. So can you talk a bit about that and why you think that it's not being talked about when people are coming in contact with services, particularly settlement services? Well, that comes from a long, long, long history of, of migration support and settlement in Australia. Mm. Migration support is really based on a certain narrow idea of like hierarchy of need. So the refugee sector and settlement has focused on those sort of things. They have not con considered disability. That's kind of like later down the track, mm. or if a family member has a disability, we'll deal with that later. So that's why settlement has not really dealt with disability well. And also one of the main things is that because they don't ask about disability, mm. it's not addressed. So if you've got a client that's coming in through the door for intake and you don't ask about disability, they're not going to answer about their disability. Yes, that's right. This show, we talk a lot about kind of invisible illness as well and invisible disabilities. So it's even less likely that people are get, services are going to pick up on that, right? Unless they ask the question. What is really interesting, though, is that when... Uh, uh, from feedback from ride members is that um, if you present to the ref refugee support or settlement service clearly with a, a visible physical mm. disability or intellectual disability, they're more um, on top of things when it comes to getting that support services available for yeah. you in the community. But if you present with, which a lot of refugees have, which is... Um, invisible disabilities, then you're less likely to get the support you need. Now this, this has been example like shrapnel injury, torture injury, bad back injury, acquired brain injury because of torture and trauma or yeah. bombs going off yeah. and because you've been shot at. Not every bullet, you know, causes it a, a clearly a deformed impairment or mm. disability, but it, it's a disability that affects you 24-7. So it might decrease your limits, your limitations to be able to do things. So getting those supports and justifying it 
is a lot harder. In the report, there was also kind of some quotes from people who you had interviewed just around their perceptions of disability and what that actually means for them mm. and for their communities. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that um, came about with my investigation into the literature of both refugees and disability mm. sector. And I thought, well, hang on, we could rewind a little bit. Have we actually asked newly arrived refugees and asylum seekers what the term disability means for them? Mainly because the mainstream disability services in Australia present disability to the public. Mm. If you want to get support, you must get your disability addressed by this organisation. And that's quite confronting for uh, newly arrived people. So it's like, whoa, um, what does this mean? Because I use English as a, as a second or third or even a fourth language. And also, well, back in my language my, or country of origin, that does not make sense. Mm. For many people, they come from countries where disabilities and having a disabilities is still looked down upon. Mm. So, or the support required to address that disability is not going to come from government, it's going to come from the community. Mm. For example, in, in one language, um, there is no word for disability, yeah. but it's a specific different types of impairments. Mm. And another, in another language, disability, the way we describe disability when it's translated, is a negative. Yeah. So the negative is reinforced when they come to Australia and they see the services that are available for them. Um, so so uh, we've talked a lot about all the gaps that there is. Um, Dominic, what do we do about it? <laughs> um, it's, this report kind of, uh, and what I came out with is kind of, kind of an overall analysis mm. of how systems are working. Yeah. And I put in a... One needs to work within those systems. Mm. So we've got the structures available, but we need to be more proactive mm. as mainstream service providers to do the right thing as you would an Australian citizen. Yeah. Just because you're newly arrived or not, don't speak English or may not know uh, a full translated document from the services... You need to actually take the initiative and be active about how they get the support that they need. If if you go to the GP, you get your initial health assessment. One should need, the doctor should ask about disability there in order to get the referral required. Mm. So that's kind of what I'm I'm kind of getting at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I feel like mainstream services saying, I don't know, is just not good enough. And I think it's up to mainstream services to reform, to change their approach and not rely on organisations like yours to kind of fill that gap for them? Um, In some ways, this report, we're kind of like throwing out a bit of bait (laughs) to them. And also, well, kind of encourage the organisation to do their homework after reading it. Yes. It it wasn't meant to be a a comprehensive thesis on refugees with disabilities. It's one to more to encourage 
internal reform in the process of how you give the support to mm. your clients. And that was Dominic Golding there, speaking as part of ableism in the settler colony, part of our Disability Day broadcast last week. Dominic and Marjo discussed the research project Dominic undertook on immigration and disability. And before Dominic, we heard from prison abolitionist and activist Latoya Rule about the intersection of race and disability. And you can check out these and other important conversations from Power from the Margins. So just head to www.3cr.org.au slash Disability Day 2019. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Join me, Aya Cry with Ubuntu Voices, Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free. One of us is chained. None of us are free. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And now I'm going to be playing uh, a new track by T Breezy, and this one is called Posted. Breezy like, yeah, you know I ain't basic Coming from the south, so I knew I had to make it Remember the nights in the cell I was praying and now I pull up to the party in a spaceship All I ever wanted was my name on the pavement Now I got the rolly on the wrist, they be hating Got to go off, lady, know you can't tame me I'll be on the block, I am not living dangerous Remember the nights, scoring points for the team Breaking into every house, taking everything we say Just to make a quick buck so we can get up out the streets All we ever wanna do is follow in our dreams Stuck in the trap, stuck in the same thing Stuck for to follow in these governmental schemes Just wish that this country would change up its theme And maybe all these lads will put down the blame But it ain't your fault, lad, you set up to fail Just keep your head up and for the holy grail They ain't ever wanna see a lad make his bail They all rather see a lad sitting up in jail I'm just steady waiting on the day that I prevail I promise to be seen as long as I stay on this trail I'm starting with the music cause I'm sick of the scales Sick of the coppers always on my tail Hey, breezy lad, yeah, you know I ain't basic Coming from the south, so I knew I had to make it Remember the nights in the cell, I was praying And now I pull up to the party in a spaceship All I ever wanted was my name on the pavement Now I got the rollie on the wrist, they be hating Better go off, lad, you know they can't tame me I'll be on the block, day and night, living dangerous I'd rather see a young lad puss up on the block Than see a young lad steady smoke up on the rock And no guarantee he gon' make it to the top I promise by he gon' work non-stop To take care of his family and look out for his mob He gon' face his fears and try to hit the mountain top No matter what he come across, he ain't gonna stop Call his family first, like, no matter what I remember nights with the boys pumping jobs Just trying to get a bag so we can get some lucky shots All we ever wanted was a watch with some rocks But all we ever got was the call another block What's up? Bro, I'm sick of man stuck in this trap, eh? Yeah, bro, I got for sure, gotta put us on the map 
that, bro, for sure. I'm gonna get out of it. I'm sick of saying positive. And that track there was posted by T Breezy. Um, yeah, a bit of a trap vibe, which I'm really into, but heavy bass <laughs> for the morning. So hope listeners enjoyed that one. And now on the line, we're going to be speaking with Phil Murray, who is an organiser with Seed Mob. Welcome, Phil. Yeah, I'm up. Good to be here. Um, and can you just introduce yourself for listeners? Yeah, well, um, yeah, my name's Philip Murray. I'm Narrable and Lydia Ryan Murray from New England in northwest of so-called New South Wales. Um, and I'm an organiser and campaigner with um, Seed Indigenous Seed Climate Network, Seed Mob. And what has Seed been up to at the moment? Uh, so our big focus um, at the moment has been our campaign to stop Origin Energy from fracking in the Northern Territory. Um, we're doing a, bit, we're doing a bunch of work on that. We had a big action at the Origin Energy Annual General Meeting earlier this um, year, so in October, we brought down mob from the Northern Territory whose country Origin Energy is um, is fracking at the moment for gas at the moment, and um, <clears throat> yeah, they came down there and had a chance to speak inside the um, in the AGM. We had five or six hundred people in Martin Place for a, um, for a big action there. We're doing a series of training camps um, across the country over the last few months, so. Um, giving young mob the skills in campaigning and organising to um, help them take on the battles that are needed to um, win mm. in climate crisis. Yeah, which is um, just, oh, it's on our doorstep, isn't it, at the moment? Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, so you spoke about, um, you know, an action that's... Um, happened um what else is coming up and what can people do to support seed mob in the future um yeah so a few things people can do at the moment obviously coming into the christmas break you know, a lot of people are uh, having a bit of downtime maybe not doing as much as they have been doing um but we're continuing our uh, our actions every friday morning outside origin Energy's office in um in melbourne our focal friday actions and um i think we've got we're going to wrap up after this week for the year. Then we have a series of online actions we're doing. So um, going to put out an action the next day or two, collecting Christmas card messages to send to Origin staff around the country um, and uh, have a number of different videos stuff coming out over the uh, over the break that we'd love people to, to share. If people haven't yet done it, take the pledge to take action to stop uh, Origin Energy. Um, and then in January and February, we'll have a, um, a few more fun and creative kind of actions coming up that, um, yeah, don't want to give away all the details, so do people um, keep an eye out for when they see those actions come out and send out to support those. Um, yeah, so, like Phil, is the, next, is the next um, action happening outside of Origin Energy this Friday? Yeah, tomorrow morning, so every Friday morning at 8 o'clock, um, there's a crew that turn out come rain, hail or shine and um, talk to Origin staff and hand out flyers and dress up in 
um, ridiculous costumes and <laughs> um, generally have a good time. So, mm. um, yeah, that's tomorrow morning, the last one for the year. People can get out to support that. Um, and Phil, and um, so, yeah, yeah, a lot of listeners um, know that Origin Energy is doing dirty business, but can you talk a bit more specifically about why Seed is targeting Origin Energy specifically in this campaign? Yeah, um, so for um, a long time, and we're still continuing to um, campaign to ban fracking in the Northern Territory with the um, local mob on the ground up there and to make sure that the... Um, make sure that the regulations and um, and the recommendations of the scientific inquiry and, um, into fracking in the Northern Territory are put it, uh, implemented. So, like, cut a long story short, basically, there was a temporary ban put on fracking in the NT, new government, um, once the Labor government, once they got in, flipped on that and um, allowed fracking to go ahead with 142, um, as long as 142 different conditions were met. I think it was 142 in that range. Um, and uh, because Origin is a massive national company with millions of customers and a footprint all over, particularly like the east coast of Australia, um, um, yeah, particularly over the east coast of Australia, they um, we decided to do a strategic target them because we could stop them from fracking in the NT. It would send a clear message to other companies uh, that they weren't welcome and that this was never going to be a viable proposition. Um, so we've been running this campaign for a little bit over a year now. Um, Origin is still pushing ahead with their plans to uh, ignore recommendations of the scientific inquiry, which said that um, fracking was not allowed during the wet season, and Origin are pushing ahead with plans to frack during the wet season and to store wastewater in open waste ponds and all kinds of you know, dangerous activities. We know from their Queensland fracking operations that um, one of the most common environmental breaches that they have is um, overflow of wastewater and spills of um, wastewater and those sorts of things. And, um, you know, that will be magnified a lot um, in the Northern Territory. It's really hectic wet season. Mm. And, yeah, now the seasons are also just changing so rapidly as well. And, um, yeah, we're just seeing that all across this continent. Um, so, the, yeah, the impacts of climate change aren't just making things hotter, but it's just making all of the seasons and the weather um, just change so dramatically all throughout the year. Yeah, it's making the more intense storms and, like, really, um, when the monsoon season does finally hit in the NT, it'll be um, very intense and um, will make for stronger cyclones and other really intense weather systems that, um, you know, are going to make uh, something like, you know, fracking in, um, in the Northern Territory a really dangerous proposition. And has Seed had any progress on talking to any um, you know, high authorities in um, Origin Energy, the company? Um, yes, yeah, so we met with um, with the Executive General Manager of Corporate Affairs earlier in the year, and um, you know they um, tried to, I guess, I don't know what the word is, put the bins of spin on what they're on what they're doing, and um, you know convince us that what they're doing is safe, but really just sort of left us with the um, belief that, you know, it's something we really need to fight really hard against. Um, and, you know, that what they want to bring to the Northern Territory is a full-blown gas industry like we see in southwest Queensland, which is um, a very dangerous proposition in you know, a place like BNT that hasn't had anything like that before and that also has huge potential for renewable energy, something we don't want to happen. So, 
week or so, we had a week of action last season. Um, had or- you know, Origin where, um, yeah, I guess it's an unusual thing for companies to, do to be responding to their critics directly on social media. So they were, you know, on Twitter and Facebook and um, responding, you know, replying to our tweets and all sorts of things on there, which was a, uh, an unusual thing. So I guess they're feeling a little bit of pressure from us. Oh, that's fantastic. And, I mean, that's the power of boycott, um, just taking away that social licence from these huge companies that think it's okay to be in dirty business. Yeah, and I think, like, they're not taking into consideration the impact this will have on their business. Now, we've got thousands of Origin Energy customers who um, have taken the pledge to take action to leave Origin if, you know, if these plans continue to, um, to go ahead and... Um, you know, we've got over 11,000 people that have um, signed our pledge to take action and another number of other organisations. There's also thousands of people who've um, pledged to take action and over 4,000 people have taken action on the uh, the campaign this year, whether that's turning out in person to uh, rallies or actions or our power of country to uh, um, or whether that's like online actions like um, writing a personalised message to the CEO of Origin or um, doing a submission to their environmental management plan. So... Um, like we know that we have a huge number of people that are very concerned about this issue and are prepared to mobilise and, um, and take action. I think that's something that Origin should be really concerned about if they care about their social licence at all. Mm, absolutely. 4,000 people have signed up. Oh, that's fantastic. And how long now have you been um, meeting outside of the Origin Energy building in Melbourne? Um, pretty much every Friday since February. Oh, um, wow. been super people. Even when it was minus, yeah, minus one degrees and sleet and hail and, <sighs> um, cyclonic winds blowing through Melbourne there. Yeah, they turned out no matter what. So, um, very impressive crew in Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's such dedication. Um, yeah, well done to Seed Mob. And, um, yeah. yeah. Maybe just lastly, Phil, um, if you could, yeah, tell people how to um, keep updated with what's happening with the um, no fracking in the NT campaign. Is Instagram yeah, sure. or Facebook best? Um, uh, yeah, but Instagram we um, uh, probably the quickest way to find us with a seed mob, but also on Facebook is Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network. Great, um, and sorry, I'm just said to my daughter how to still watch this. <laughs> <laughs> Getting ready for school, um, and yeah, and people can sign up to pledge um, online? Um, yeah. yeah, so if they go to um they can sign the pledge to take action against Origin Energy and that will keep them up to date on all the actions and, um, and yeah, different tactics that we would like them to, to do. Yeah, fantastic. And you can also head down to Origin um, tomorrow morning as well and help hand out yep. flyers with SeedMob. 321 Exposition Street. Great. Well, thank you so much, Phil, for joining us on 3CR this morning. No worries. Thank you very much. QR Code is an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes, hear us engaging with our communities, discussing diverse and intersecting topics on In Your Face on the last Friday of every month or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR Code. And follow us on Facebook at... QR code 3CR, funded by the City of Yarra.
Guatemala. I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And just before those community service announcements, I was speaking with Phil Murray, who is an organiser with Seed Mob. Um, so definitely check them out on social media and stay up to date with the No Fracking in the NT campaign. And now I think we're going to head to a track by one of my favourite artists that makes uh, music on this continent. Um, and this one is by TK Miser, IDC, If You Be Dead. something on the floor I put it there but just like don't you touch my stuff cause you can't mess up with my confidence don't you cross my path or you gon' suffer from the consequence oh you try too much but you don't come up with the documents I left your message on red yeah. I don't care if you be dead yeah. don't you touch my stuff cause you can't mess up with my confidence don't you cross my path or you gon' suffer from the consequence oh you try too much but you don't come up with the Well, you know, trying to go to Mars like Bruno. Knock a bitch out like Juno. Knock a bitch out like Judo. I'm a realist man with a culo. Any mini, I don't want your doodle. Came cars ride like a duo. Double O coming like Google. Boom, boom, fight night, fight night, fight night. I be getting checks like Mike. Shorty wanna just like mine. No, you can't touch my mic. Always on 10, never pretend. Molly in hand, and 20 fans. Put by a Glock, I write a nod. Took all my shots, aim for your head. <laughs> He's just like, I don't know. <laughs> don't you touch my stuff, cause you can't mess up with my confidence. Don't you cross my path, or you gon' suffer from the consequence. Oh, you try too much, but you don't come up with the documents. I left your message on red. I don't care if you be dead. Don't you touch my stuff, cause you can't mess up with my confidence. Don't you cross my path, or you gon' suffer from the consequence. Oh, you try too much, but you don't come up with the documents. I left your message on red. Even close, I'm just getting started. Tommy Cuzzy Bun got two knives at my socks, fuzzy edges cutting. Tabbing in the blood now for two black and white. Kittle and his cousin on that pussy wagon. Got that gasoline like I'm Ryan. Circle the block, hit a hit man with a killer rim shot. Did a quick scan till I get a fist hot. Bitch, you ain't a tan, you a fill a big dot. Full of flip flops, red lock, red lock, bitch, you been hot. Watch your hands, you're finna get hot. Full of fence, my index built up like my privacy unlocked. Amazing. Don't you touch my stuff, cause you can't mess up with my confidence. Don't you cross my path, or you gon' suffer from the consequence. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you try too much, but you don't come up with the documents. 
on a serious note Sometimes you're stuck like a pin in my throat Honestly, comes when I gather my thoughts I just see if you a GTFO But don't touch my shit, you be deep in my sauce Deep in my feelings, I need to let go Leave me be, I don't be leaving a choice Screaming so loud that I'm losing my voice You're listening to 855 AM here at 3CR. And that track there was IDC If You Be Dead by TK Meisner. Um, a very pop song for this morning, so I hope listeners enjoyed that one. Um, and next up, we're going to be speaking about um, the National Family Violence Prevention and Legal Services Forum, which has been advised that its $244,000 a year funding will not be renewed past June 2020. And on the line, we have Roxanne Moore, who's the Executive Officer of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Services. Welcome, Roxanne. Hi, thanks for having me. Can you speak to us a bit more about what this National Family Violence um, Prevention Legal Services Forum is about? Yeah, so the National Family Violence Prevention Legal Services Forum um, has 14 members. It's um, community-controlled Aboriginal um, prevention legal services which help victim survivors of family violence. Um, And we, as the National Peak Body for Aboriginal Legal Services, work really closely with them um, to make sure that our mob have um, culturally safe legal services. Um, so it's really important that they have a, a national voice um, on this issue of family violence because it's an issue that absolutely devastates our community. Mm. And the NFVPLS was formally initiated in May 2012. What work um, has been done in this time, in this space? Oh, they're involved in every national conversation about family violence as it relates to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and particularly women and children. Um, they're involved in the Bridging the Gap process, which they'll no longer have a voice in. Um, they've been involved, you know, on, on issues across the country, like the National Family Violence um, Plan. It's it's just um, an absolute tragedy for them to lose their national voice on all of these critical issues that have a real impact in our communities and our women's lives. Like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women are dying at horrific rates. Um, ten times, we're ten times more likely to die from violence than non-Indigenous women and our women are 34 times more likely to be hospitalised for um, family violence and you know National Family Violence Forum has been absolutely critical in raising awareness about this issue across the country um, their convener Antoinette Braybrook is constantly um, in the media and um, you know at public events um, raising awareness about the solutions that are needed um, to end this crisis for our community. Yeah, this is just terrible news. And it comes also just before um, Oka Ribbon Week, which is also something that this forum um, and this group initiated. Yes, absolutely. So Oka Ribbon Week is, um, you know, the counterpart to uh, White Ribbon. And um, it's about 
you know, raising awareness about how deeply um, this issue impacts our communities and particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women with family violence. Um, that's just one of the initiatives um, that they've been involved in in setting up on a national level, raising that awareness, um, you know, as well as, you know, raising awareness about the solutions that are needed, like community-controlled co- programs um, that they run, um, you know, like JIRA runs, you know, like the Dilly Bag program and many others, um, which are about, you know, helping um, Aboriginal women to um, have, you know, safe relationships and um, make sure that um, they're not victim to violence. Mm. So what impact is the defunding of the NFVPLS going to have? So it means that there's no longer going to be a national peak body for um, victim survivors of family violence for our mob. Um, it means that um, that they're not going to have... Uh, it means that Aboriginal women's voices in particular are going to be silenced and um, invisible on these issues around the country. Um, you know, there is a national conversation about family violence, but Aboriginal women are not um, centred in that debate, and that's why it's so important that we have this national voice. Now, um, you know, Minister Wyatt is saying that he's going to redistribute the funds, uh, a measly $240,000 a year, we're talking. Mm. Um, he's going to redistribute that amongst the, um, the service providers, the Family Violence Prevention Legal Service providers on the ground. That's not what they want. That's not what they've been asking for. It's a very small amount of money that is critical to um, making sure that Aboriginal victim survivors of violence have a voice on the national level. Um, and it, they're talking, Minister White's talking about, you know, um, co-designing um, what their voice should look like. Well, that's not self-determination. Ab- Aboriginal people, um, we deserve to be able to say what we want our national peak bodies and representative voices to look like, um, and the Minister is not listening. No. And I imagine at these forums that it allows um, Family Violence Prevention Legal Services to actually share resources um, and discuss um, all of the issues happening in various communities across this continent. Um, Yes, absolutely. And that's similar to us, you know, at NATSL's um, you know, where the equivalent um, national peak body of um, NFVPLS, and it's the same thing. You know, we bring our members together, we share best practice, um, we talk about the current issues, you know, like, you know, death in custody, for example. Um, and so, yeah, having that um, that national body to be able to bring all of the community-controlled family violence prevention legal services together to do that important work and make sure that our, our communities are getting the best, you know, culturally safe service that they can. Mm. And as you yeah, previously mentioned, that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women nationally are 34 times more likely to be hospitalised for family violence and 10 times more likely to die from a violent assault than other women in this country. So what is the government saying by taking this funding away? I feel like it's saying that our lives don't matter. Mm. Frankly, like, I mean, if if the if that's the minister's decision, despite um, Family Violence Prevention Legal Services Forum all coming together and clearly saying we need a national voice, and then there's a decision to defund that national voice, it's saying your voices don't matter. 
um, and our lives don't matter. Like this is, our women are dying at absolutely horrific rates, um, and this is people's lives that we're talking about. I think that you know it's clear, and I think the the federal government acknowledges that family violence is, you know, one of the number one issues in this country. So to you know to ignore um, the fact that our women are, are dying at, at rates much higher than other women and then saying no you can't have a national voice it's absolutely unacceptable and it's a real um, you know it's it's really upsetting for our communities um, especially you know from Minister Wyatt. Mm. And I think you raised a really important point too that this money, um, you know, is going towards people coming together um, all across the continent and, you know, sharing those resources, sharing those ideas, and possibly that's what, um, you know, the government is afraid of, and um, also that they are still trying to, um, you know, push their own narrative um, and make all of these uh, legal organisations um kind of conform to their idea of how to respond to family violence instead of allowing that um, self-determination to come from communities. Yeah, and it just flies in the face of evidence as well, you know. So this is not an evidence-informed decision. Um, This is a political decision. And um, we're seeing that, you know, there was recently a Charles Darwin University independent evaluation of all the family violence prevention legal services and there are no recommendations in that report that said that the national legal sector, the national forum should be defunded. Um, in fact, the recommendations said that they needed additional resources to be able to do that work. So it, it just flies in the face of, of the evidence that has been produced through an independent study. Mm. Um, and it's, um, you know, it's, it's going to have a devastating impact on our community. Mm. I think there's a really interesting dichotomy, especially on Kulin Nation lands, um, as we've just seen the um, first uh, First Nations public assembly, uh, sorry, uh, First Peoples Assembly um, mm-hmm. take place. And then on a national level, we're seeing um, this funding from, yeah, the um, Aboriginal Family Violence Prevention Legal Services be cut. So, you know, there's governments yeah, well- trying to maybe do some work in this, yeah in regards to allowing Aboriginal peoples have their own self-determination um, and provide the solutions needed. Um, and then, yeah, there's also still this pushback from the settler colony as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even on the national level, you know, there's talk of, you know, what the Indigenous Voice to Parliament looks like. There's, you know, talk of, you know, working in partnership with Aboriginal community-controlled organisations and peak bodies as part of the Coalition of Peaks to do the Closing the Gap refresh. You know, that that's the government saying, we want to work in partnership with you as equal partners at the table to work out how to close the gap for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islands people. And yet, uh, in the next breath, they're deciding to defund the same peak bodies that they're saying they want to work with us in equal partnership with. And it's just... It's it's really concerning to all of us. Like you know, as the executive officer of um, Natsals, another um, Aboriginal peak body, um, it's a threat to all of our national voices. Um, you know, who's next? I mean, it's it's really concerning for self determination and and particularly um, 
you know, it just doesn't, it flies in the face of the whole closing the gap process um, and all of these conversations that are happening around the country, like you say, about treaty, about voice to parliament, you know, so it just doesn't make any sense. And um, particularly when this issue is is such a, a huge one for our communities, for our women, for our children, um, you know, we're, we're dying um, at absolutely horrific rates and it just, it feels like the government um, doesn't care. Mm. But what can the community do to um, try and reverse the government's decision? Yes, well, the National Family Violence Forum has, um, you know, launched a public campaign. Um, the hashtag is Save FPLS, um, VPLS. Um, so if you are on social media, um, head to their Twitter, head to their Facebook of the National Family Violence Prevention Legal Services Forum. Um, they are sharing a lot of um, content and stories, um, trying to get the word out there about these decisions and that it needs to be reversed. Um, also, on the Fair Agenda page, there's an email action that's happening at the moment. Um, there's also um, uh, more um, information on the National Family Violence Forum website. Um, so head over there and um, find out how you can be involved. Great. Thank you so much, Roxanne, for joining us on 3CR this morning. No worries. Thank you. And that was Roxanne Moore there, uh, who's the Executive Officer of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Services. And we were talking about the defunding of the National Secretariat of the Family Violence Protection Legal Services. Accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accented women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On community radio three CR. Great Voices is 3CR's popular classical vocal show every Tuesday from 2 to 3pm with Murray McInerney. We play the very best of opera, song, leader and choirs and we also take requests. So why not listen in to Great Voices every Tuesday afternoon from 2 to 3 on 3CR. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM. And I'm going to head into a track now by Project NRT, and this one's called Downswing, Far From Home. On the search for backbones, need to find steel zone, it's a traitor house a day. The further from your sense of self becomes unknown, and the more I start to hate, believed once I progress, it's a lie I now endures. Yes, I'm going through a downswing, a downswing, a downswing, 
everything ends You start searching again Start questioning That track there is Downswing Far From Home by Project NRT. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And now we're going to be talking about some really unfortunate news that's um, come out of Samoa. There's currently a measles epidemic. And joined on the line now, I have Clara Sioni, who is a phenomenal local artist. Um, and yeah, she's going to be talking a little bit about what's happening in Samoa um, and also a fundraiser called Songs for Samoa. Welcome, Clara. Hello, hello. Could you, first, could you first start by telling listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, my name's Clara um, Sione, and uh, I'm a singer, um, uh, Samoan Fijian heritage, um, and I've been living in Melbourne for about eight years, eight to nine years. Um, yeah, I'm also in a duo called Good Luck Omen uh, with Diego Villalta. Um, basically, um, as a child of the diaspora. I'm 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 here in Melbourne, but obviously my community in Samoa are suffering at the moment um, at the hands of this measles epidemic. Mm. Um, 
which is really tragic. Um, currently, uh, 4,898 um, cases, people affected at the moment. Um, 70 of those um, people have perished um, at the hands of measles um, outbreak um, and I believe it's 60 um, 60 of those cases are children for mm. and under um, which has and will um, affect our community um, for a very long time. Um, so basically what um, I want to do is, uh, you know, I can't go over there at the moment. We all have our commitments. I, I just wanted to kind of quickly try and um, organize and rally our community here so that we can show our support. Um, being of um, Samoan heritage, um, our values are, are based around community and coming together and helping one another. Um, and when we're overseas, um, locked in our responsibilities, it's kind of hard to do that. So... What we do is we send money over, <clears throat> and that kind of, um, um, yeah, that's something that we, that's how we show our support um, in this day and age, I guess. Um, so coming together next week, Friday, Footscray Community Arts Centre, um, the fundraiser's called Songs for Samoa. The artists involved uh, include um, artists from the Pacific um, and also um, from from Melbourne as well. So we've got uh, Scorms, who is a beat maker, producer, uh, and a very dear friend of mine. He'll be doing uh, a, beat set, a beat set for us. Um, we have Lau, um, who's a young Samoan artist. Um, really excited um, to actually like hear him live. Um, he's been working on a new set for us. Um, Bella Waru, um, who is a dancer, poet, um, singer, um, who is of uh, Māori heritage. Uh, we've got Project Entity, who's the song that was playing before. He's doing an acoustic set. He's amazing. Also, um, one of my Māori brothers, who I love dearly. Um, we've also got Tiana Kasi as well, um, um, who I've just recently come to know and, and uh, really appreciate her her music and, and um, her willingness to help um, this cause. Um, and also um, the duo that I'm in, Good Luck Omen, which is myself and Diego Villalta. Um, we hope to raise enough funds to um, purchase more supplies in order to help um, mm. the people who have been affected in Samoa. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And just for listeners, um, because this hasn't actually been widely reported um, in so-called Australia, uh, a lot of yeah, the articles I've been reading are from actually overseas. Even the New York Times covered this story. Mm. Um, yeah. But yeah, the country remains under a state of emergency with no one under the age of 19 allowed to attend public gatherings. And as Clara said, um, yeah, there was 60 of the 70 people who have um, passed away were young children and yeah, this is going to affect um, generations to come. Mm. Um, yeah, and the government um, has said the mobile vac- vaccination teams um, had succeeded in ensuring that 90% of the 200,000 strong population have been immunised. Um, but as Clara, you also said that over 4,000 people um, have been infected with this disease and it's an absolute tragedy. So, yeah, if there is... Um, Anything that you can do to support um, folks in Samoa, um, yeah, definitely try and do that and also head along to this fundraiser. 
Thank you, Carly. And just one more thing to say, you can find uh, the event on Facebook um, under Songs for Samoa. Um, the door entry is $15. Um, we'd really love to see you come out and support. It's next week, next week Friday. The doors open at 7.30. Um, and, yeah, just uh, really eager and looking forward to being able to raise some funds to um, show our support to our community. Mm. Yeah. Thank you, Clara, um, yeah, for coming on air this morning and talking about this. Um, and you did mention that Tiana Cassie is going to be playing um, for Songs of Samoa. So I think now we'll head to a track called Megalala, <laughs> Megalaya <laughs> by Tiana Cassie to finish off the show. Thanks, Clara. Thanks, Pally. Thanks. Bye-bye.
Listening to 3CR 855 AM, and that track there was Megalaya um, by Tiana Cassie. And you can catch Tiana Cassie at Songs for Samoa, um, and that is going to be um, a, a, a gig, um, and it's going to be raising money for people in Samoa who've been affected by measles. Um, so that is happening next Friday, the 20th of December, from 7:30 p.m. onwards. Um, and as Clara mentioned before, there's just a number of great acts, including Tiana Cassie, Good Luck Omen, Project NRT, um, and I played that track before as well by them, Scombs and Lau. So hope to see you there. And that's all we have time for on the show this morning, so stay tuned for Lost in Science. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.